0: So it is a classic tale. Edward, Prince of Wales, lives in the royalty and luxury in the palace. Tom Canty is a lowly beggar living on the streets of London. His life is all about survival, but a chance encounter brings these two people together and they realize they could pass as twins. So the stage is set. The royal prince will humble himself and take off his royal robes and put on the lowly clothes of a beggar. He will live among the common people and in the process experience their hardships firsthand. The common people will be able to relate to Prince Edward because he is now one of them. So he appears. He will have compassion on them and at times they may even get a glimmer of who he is. They may even think, there's something different about this one. Now, you'll have to read The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain to get the rest of that story. But I couldn't help but think of the similarities between that tale and our passage today. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11 is a lesson in the beauty of humility, pointing us to the greatest example of humility in all time, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who left the glory of the throne of heaven To enter into the brokenness of life on earth as a tiny baby, born in a stinky manger, to the lowest of society, to live among sinners, and to be willing to die in exchange for a debt we could not pay and one in which he did not owe. And yet, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's right. So let's jump into our text today and explore a little further. Let's read Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, I get excited when I get to that last part I don't know about you guys but that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father I get excited like I just feel this oh, yay you know and in, inside of me but let's get back to our let's we got to start at verse 5 till we get to the other part so verse 5 starts by pointing us back to the previous verses he says have this mind among yourselves which is yours in christ jesus so what is this mind what is it it's yeah it's the mind and the attitude of christ so if we look in philippians 2 verses 1 to 4 it says remember it appeals to what we have in christ encouragement comfort participation in the spirit affection sympathy blah blah, blah. and then do what in verse 3 Who can read Philippians 2, verses 3 to 4? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Yes, so it's humility. It's the humility. So the Elizabeth Standard Version of that passage, verses 2 and 3, which uses way fewer words than Paul does, Says so just be humble and put others first. In verse 5, Paul is saying, Since we're united in Christ, we have the same mind, that mind of Christ. I'm going to practically show you what humility really looks like in the best example we could ever have, and that's in Jesus. Ryan Kelly says, Paul's primary goal here is to show Jesus as the ultimate example of humility, servanthood, and sacrifice. It is this mind that we should have among ourselves. Now, before we dive into the next few verses, I'm just going to give a little bit of commentary on verses 6 to 7, kind of as an overview. Um, in my research and just talking, looking through this, it says many of the scholars believe that verses 6 to 11 represent a hymn sung in the early church, and it was organized into six stanzas. Um, verses six to eight is um, these verses would celebrate Christ's humiliation, and then verses nine to eleven celebrate His exaltation. Some also refer to this passage as the kenosis passage. That was a new term for me, and I will explain it to you um, in a little bit when we get there. So. Okay, so let's read Philippians 2, verses 5 to 6. We're putting 5, I mean, excuse me, 5 to 8. We're putting 5 back in there just for context. So let's read that. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in this form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So verse 6 is pointing to the truth about the deity of Christ. Jesus is God. John MacArthur says, The declaration that Christ was in the form of God must be understood as a reference to the reality of his deity. The word form does not mean that he was God merely in external appearances. Edward in the prince and the pauper was still a prince, no matter what clothes he was wearing. So whether Jesus is wearing royal robes or tattered rags, he is still God. And whether Jesus was on the throne in heaven or walking the streets of Jerusalem, he was still God. God the Father, God the Son co-equal and co-eternal. But what about the second part of verse 6? It says, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I don't know. I read that and I go, what in the world is Paul saying? It helps me to read it at a third grade level. (laughs) So the NIRV translates it this way. In his very nature, he was God. God was equal with God excuse me, Jesus was equal with God, but Jesus didn't take advantage of that fact. Okay, that makes a lot more sense to me. Jesus was God. He was equal to God, but he didn't need to take advantage of that. He didn't need to be a show-off. He could have shown himself mighty in every way. He could have had the royal robes. He could have had a procession of angels following him. He didn't ever have to be hungry or tired or any of that stuff, but he cast that all aside. Now, this kind of reminds me of Superman, <laughs> the Man of Steel. Um, I think that's probably my favorite um, of the of the Superman movies, as Superman, the Man of Steel. Um, but, I mean, think about it. Just because Superman puts on his Clark Kent glasses doesn't mean that he's not still Superman. He still has super strength. He has all the vision, all the, all the things. Um, and there's this one scene, kind of towards the end, um, Superman is surrendering to the American military. And he allows them to put handcuffs on him. And Lois Lane is interviewing him. He said he wanted to talk to her. I don't, I don't know. But anyway, Superman in handcuffs in the interrogation room, and then there's Lois Lane. And she says to him, why are you surrendering to Zod? Now, he was the evil Kryptonian guy that was wanting to suck all of Superman's blood. But anyway, um, Superman says, I'm not surrendering to Zod. I'm surrendering to mankind. There's a difference. And then she sarcastically says, you let them handcuff you. And he says, it wouldn't be much of a surrender if I resisted. And if it makes them feel more secure, then all the better for it. John MacArthur said in his, said this, in his incarnation, Christ voluntarily yielded the independent exercise of his divine attributes to the will of his heavenly father. He yielded, he surrendered his position and veiled his deity to walk with us. Just like Superman did in our movie example, or my movie example. He willingly set aside super strength and allowed himself to be bound by handcuffs for the benefit of mankind. So if we keep going, we get to verse 7, and that gets to that kenosis term. And let's take a look. Remember it says, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now the Greek word for emptied here is the word kenao, meaning to empty or to make empty. So there are theologians that that refer to the passage as kenosis, the kenosis passage, saying that Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being in the likeness of men. And people who teach this kenotic theology will say that Jesus emptied himself of his deity, claiming that he retained some attributes like Holiness and grace, but surrendered what they call his relative attributes—omniscience, immutability, stuff like that. This is all from John MacArthur. I didn't, I didn't know any of this stuff. But here's the thing: we have to be careful to not read into the text something that's not there. The text clearly does not tell us what Jesus emptied Himself of. Um, the website got questions. I think, succinctly explained it to me in plain English. And I'm going to read you what they said about this. Jesus did not empty himself of his divine attributes. No such attributes are mentioned in the verse, and it is obvious in the Gospels that Jesus possessed the power and wisdom of God. Calming the storm is just one display of his divine power. That's in Mark 4.39. In coming to earth, the Son of God did not cease to be God, and he did not become a lesser God. Whatever the emptying entailed, Jesus remained fully God. It is better to think of Christ emptying of himself as a laying aside of the privileges that were his in heaven. Rather than stay on his throne in heaven, Jesus made himself nothing, as the NIV translates Philippians two seven. When he came up to earth, he gave up his divine privileges. That's what it says in the New Living. He veiled his glory and chose to occupy the position of a slave. So again, it's kind of like my Superman example. He puts on the Clark Kent glasses, or maybe he allows the, um, the military to cuff him. At any moment, Jesus could have accessed any divine attribute he wanted to, and sometimes he did. But in humility, he set that aside and voluntarily limited those abilities. He chose to set aside his royal robes and put on the tattered rags of humanity. But underneath those rags, he was still God. And then verse eight further describes his humility. The New Living Translation says he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So what then was Christ's humiliation? What was the humiliation? Let's read Hebrews two seventeen to 18. Maybe it'll give us a clue. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So again, we're going to look to John MacArthur to help us with this. The master willingly submitted himself to the life of a slave. He left the worship of saints and angels to be despised and rejected by men, submitting himself to misunderstanding, denials, unbelief, (coughs) false accusations, and every sort of reviling and persecution persecution. As God the Son, he had every right to exercise his divine prerogatives at will. Yet, as the suffering servant of Yahweh, he surrendered to the will of the Father in everything. Verse 8 says that he died a criminal's death on a cross. Steve Lawson said that this death was this was a death so loathsome that it was reserved only for the worst criminals, so despised that Roman law forbade any Roman citizen to be subjected to such cruel treatment. Yet the divine man Jesus would be put to death by being nailed to a Roman cross. There he would hang naked, publicly exposed, viewed as an enemy of the empire, condemned as a blasphemer against God, and as John Calvin wrote, accursed in the sight of God why would anyone willingly leave the perfection of heaven for life as a lowly human being knowing that it would end in the most horrid of deaths why it was love it was because he loved us god is loved for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever should believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That love made Christ's humiliation worth it to him. And thankfully, humiliation and death are not the end of the story. Let's move on to verses uh, 9 to 11. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, So it says, therefore. So what's the therefore? Therefore, since Jesus has humbled, has been humbled by being obedient to the point of death, since Jesus died on the cross for your sin, since Jesus has been humiliated, God has exalted him. And there's a principle at work here that whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Again, Stephen Lawson writes, True humility will never be forgotten by God. God will see it, God will note it, and God will reward it. So there's some big words there. Exalted. What does exalted actually mean? I had to look that up. I mean, we, we use it all the time. We just sing it on Sunday. Um, the Greek is actually, it actually says highly exalted. It's, let me see, huper usapo. It means to raise to the highest position, to elevate above all others. And what else did God do besides exalt him? What does it say in verse 9? Bestowed on him a name. Yeah, bestowed means to give graciously, to give freely. So God exalted him, made him higher than any other. He graciously and freely gave him a name that is above every other name. To me, those kind of say the same thing. You know, no name is higher. No person is higher. He is the greatest. He is the Lord Jesus. And what is the purpose of the exaltation? What does it say in verse 10? Yeah. Yeah, so at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So what is Paul saying here? My ESV study Bible says Paul likely means that the revelation of Jesus as the Lord is the signal that every knee should bow. Paul alludes to Isaiah 45 verses 14 to 25 where the bowing of of every knee and the confession of every tongue are directed toward Israel's covenant sovereign, the Lord Yahweh, who alone is God and alone can save us. So Paul is tying the Old Testament references of the Messiah to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Let's look at um, Isaiah 45, verses 22 to 23. Turn to me and be saved, all who live at the ends of the earth, because I am God and there is no other. I have found myself with an oath. The word has gone out from my righteous mouth that will not be recalled. Every knee will bow to me and every tongue So Isaiah prophesied about the restoration of Israel at the end of time. In that day, all will subject themselves to Jesus' authority. He is God, and there is no other. All will call him Lord, those currently alive, those who have died, angelic beings, demons, everything. All, all means all. Steve Lawson says, no one steps through the narrow gate leading to life until they surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In the final judgment, every unconverted person will also confess the Lordship of Christ. On the last day, unbelievers will acknowledge that Christ is exactly who he claimed to be, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Every evil spirit and Satan himself will also confess the Lordship of Jesus. This universal recognition will be be given to the glory of God the Father. So that's that last half of verse 11, to the glory of God the Father. All of this, Christ's humiliation, his exaltation, all are for the ultimate purpose of glorifying God the Father. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one says, What is the chief end of man? Meaning, what's the purpose of life? And the answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. When I counsel people with whatever issue they have going, it doesn't matter what the issue is. At some point, I'm going to give them the prime directive. Y'all are getting a sneak peek on what the prime directive is. It is in every situation, in every circumstance, Honor God in everything you do. In Philippians five, excuse me, in Philippians two verses five to eleven, Paul is pointing to Christ's humility as an example to them and how they should live, thereby bringing honor and glory to God the Father. So, if I had to summarize Philippians two verses one to eleven, I would do it this way, and it's very short, unlike Paul. <laughs> live in unity and humility follow the example of christ serve others be obedient to god walk in humility bring glory to god and i'll end today with this great application again from this is from steve lawson if we desire to bring glory to god the father then we must confess the lordship of jesus christ and submit our will to his sovereign will as we humble ourselves before christ we bring greater honor to god the father As we live our Christian lives, we must become increasingly like Jesus Christ. We must live with humility of mind. We must lower ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We must also walk in humility with the Lord daily. We must die to self and seek first the kingdom of God every day that God gives us life. And as we do, we we will be exemplifying the mind of Christ. And so the question for us today is, is Jesus Lord of your life? Is he truly Lord? Is he truly Lord in your heart? Like, your salvation is secure. You accepted Christ. You asked for the forgiveness of your sin. Your salvation is is secure. But are you living as if Jesus is Lord of your life? Do you humble yourself before him? Do you glorify God and enjoy him every day? That's a good question. All right, that's all I have for you today.